Hey everyone, this is Johnny Martinez, pastor of Restoration Church, and welcome to our podcast. We hope this podcast inspires you and encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Mark chapter 12, verses um, 18 through 27. I titled the message for today, How to Stop Drifting. How to Stop Drifting. Uh, Let me kind of give us uh, some context here uh, for this passage today. It's still Tuesday in the last week of Jesus' life. It's still Tuesday. Uh, We've seen multiple attacks on Jesus already. Uh, We saw a personal attack uh, by the Sanhedrin. Uh, the religious establishment, they, they try to attack Jesus' authority. And so when that didn't work, uh, they sent a group of Pharisees and Herodians to try to attack him and trip him up politically. If you remember last week, they were trying to trip him up politically. And so we have already seen a personal attack by the uh, uh, religious establishment. We've seen a political attack. And today we're going to see a theological attack on Jesus by a group named the Sadducees. Now, the the, the point of this attack is that they really want to make Jesus look dumb. I mean, that's really the point of this attack. They want to make Jesus look foolish. They want to make him look stupid and biblically ignorant. That's the whole point of today's attack, as we will see today. So let's go ahead and uh, read the passage for today. It says this. It says, verse 18, And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offsprings for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, it is, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. God, it's such a powerful text this morning. It has so much to teach us. And I just pray that we would open our hearts today to see what your word has to tell us. To see what your word has to teach us today. Your word is powerful, it's active, it is our daily bread, it's what sustains us. And so God, we just pray that through the power of your spirit, you would lead us together today as we examine your word 
we examine this really strange passage, but it has so many implications for our lives as believers. God, we honor you. We thank you. In your name we pray. And God's people said, amen. Amen. If you've been around uh, restoration for quite some time, uh, you know uh, that uh, there's one thing that I love to do, and that is fishing. And so some of you are thinking right now, oh my gosh, another fishing story. Like, what another? But that's what I love to do. I love to fish. Uh, there's nothing uh, besides being here with you and being with my wife. Like, I love to fish. I just like to be out in the forest, flag pacing wherever it is, and I like to be out in the lake and Uh, Not only do I just love to fish, but really one of my favorite things to do is fishing on a boat or fishing on a kayak. I love not only being in the lake, but I love being in the middle of uh, the lake on a kayak or a boat. Um, Now, here's the thing. One thing I don't love about being on a kayak or a boat in the middle of the lake, especially a a kayak, um, is that uh, you tend to drift a lot. Like, you tend to drift, and especially if you had a very, very cheap kayak like mine. I brought the cheapest of the cheap kayak. Some of you are like, yeah, you're pretty cheap. And yes, I am. And so, uh, man, this thing was so terrible. I had to sell it uh, on offer up. Best kayak ever. Someone bought it or whatever. But it's just, it's just if you have a cheap kayak, it's, it's going to be a really, really rough day for you. And so I sold my kayak. I don't have anything anymore. And so I really, really need one of those boats that just kind of keeps you anchored uh, without doing any work. It's, it's not a want. It's a need. And I hope my wife is hearing me right now. It's a need. We got to get our priorities in order. It's a need. Anyway, we'll talk about that later. But I hate that. I just hate being in a kayak and you're like drifting, you know. Uh, it, it depends on the quality of the kayak. It depends also on the wind. Man, those really windy, windy days, it just could be super hard to stay in the area where I wanted to fish, and I just kept drifting and drifting and drifting. And the truth is that it doesn't really require any work to drift, especially on a windy day. It doesn't require you any, any work to drift, but it does require a lot of work to simply stay in the area that you want to be in. And this is so true with our relationship with God as well. It's so true. It's the same thing. We all drift in our relationship with God. We all drift spiritually, and really, we all drift naturally. Naturally, we don't gravitate to a relationship with God. Naturally, we drift from God. And again, it doesn't require any work to drift away. You simply just drift. Now, question is, how do we know, how do you know, if you've drifted? How do you know if you've drifted from God? Let me ask you this question. How many of you are, or how many of you were more closer to God at one point in your life than you are today? Answer that question real quick. How many of you were more closer to God at one point in your life than you are today? 
Maybe at some point in your life you were so passionate about the word of God, so eager to study his word, so eager to examine the scriptures and you couldn't put it down. And whatever you learn, you've talked to people about it and you have this fire in your soul of a passion in your heart. Uh, maybe your relationship with God, you, you were just so on fire for him, so passionate about him. It was so evident in your life. It's all you thought about when you would wake up in the morning. You couldn't wait to just spend time with God and tell people about God and so forth and so on. Maybe that was you. Chances are that if you were closer to God at some other point in your life than you are now, you've drifted. Chances are you've drifted. And and here's the thing. When you think about drifting, I'm not simply just talking about, oh, you're going out there and sinning and living apart from God. Uh, Maybe, but, but maybe here's the thing. Maybe you're just really distracted. Maybe you're just really busy. I heard a quote that once said, if the enemy can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. If he can't cause you to sin, he'll make you busy. I'm busy with this. I'm busy with that. I'm so distracted. I'm busy, 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 busy. Or maybe simply complacency in your life. And so maybe you've drifted. And it's kind of like when, when, when you go to the ocean, right, when you go to the beach, you're kind of hanging out. Uh, you're, you, you see your stuff on the shore, and you're hanging out 20, 25 minutes later, you're like way, like 20, you know, 20, 25 yards to the side, right? You've drifted, and you, you, you really can't tell that we've drifted, but when you look back and you're like, man, my stuff is over there. Like we've drifted, and sometimes we don't even know we've drifted. It's slow. It's a slow, natural drift, and we don't have to work at it. And here's the thing. When you're in the ocean, you're on the beach, and you've drifted, your stuff didn't move. <laughs> I just want to make it clear, like, someone moved my stuff, right? Like, your stuff didn't move. You moved. Can I tell you today that if you've drifted, God didn't move? God didn't move. You've moved. You've drifted. You've wandered off. And so the question that I have today is this. How do we stop from drifting? How do we stop from drifting? Because it's something that we're going to have to fight the rest of our lives because naturally we drift away from God. We don't drift towards God. And here's the thing, church. Drifting, it's dangerous. Drifting leads to spiritual decay. Drifting leads to spiritual death, a loss of joy, a loss of peace, a loss of amazement of who God is, a loss of hope. I mean, drifting is dangerous. The question I want to answer today, very practical, how do we stop from drifting from God? How do we stop from drifting? And so what I want to do is I really want to examine this passage and at the very end uh, apply it to our lives. So let's look at uh, verse 18 here uh, really quick. Verse 18, it says this, and Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection And they asked him a question saying, I want to stop there for a second. So let me kind of give you uh, some some info here. So who are the Sadducees? Uh, We've already seen the Sanhedrin. We've already seen uh, the uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, like, they're sending the Sadducees to try to trap Jesus. 
So the Sadducees had a lot of political and spiritual influence um, uh, in the temple. They actually ran the temple. Uh, they were very wealthy people. They were wealthy aristocrats. Uh, Josephus, a, Josephus, a Jewish first century historian, said these guys were really stuck up. Uh, they were actually very rude people. I mean, that's what he says. That's what this historian writes, that the Sadducees were super rude, mean, arrogant people. Now, theologically, uh, the Sadducees only believed in the law of Moses. They only believed in the Pentateuch. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, and they thought that everything else in the Old Testament was simply commentary to the law of Moses. They also didn't believe or they denied the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. But their greatest theological distinction here and distinctive is that they didn't believe in a future resurrection. Uh, that's what Mark tells us here. Uh, and the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. That's what they were really known for, these Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe that there was a life after death. The Sadducees didn't believe that there was a future resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Come on, that was a good joke. That was so good. I know. Okay, I know. I know you're just trying to hold it in. I know, but it was a good joke. It was a good joke. That's a pastor joke. That's a pastor joke. But that's what they thought. That's what they believed. And then so they asked Jesus this absurd question. They, ask, they give Jesus this totally absurd scenario, and he has to answer this. This is what they say in verse 19. They say, teacher, Moses, again, the law, wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. And when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection. Very interesting. They, didn't, they don't even believe in the resurrection, but they're asking Jesus about the resurrection. Do you notice that? In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. So, they give this Jesus this crazy, absurd scenario. Well, you know, you have two married people, and the husband dies, uh, and then uh, the brother takes her as wife, no offspring. It happens seven times, okay, at the resurrection, which we don't even believe, whose wife is she going to be? Now, what they're referring to here is called the Leverite marriage. The Leverite marriage. And I want to show you in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 through 6, it says this. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. This is the law of Moses. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And so the idea here is that if a brother is married to his wife and he dies and he has no kids, then 
the, the brother who's next in line, if he's single, not if he's married, if he's single, I just want to clarify that, would then take her as his wife. Why? Uh, so that uh, this is God's way of preserving the family name. This is God's way of preserving wealth, of preserving inheritance, of preserving uh, uh, stewardship. Okay, so that's, that's really the idea behind this, and it was the law of Moses. Again, the Sadducees didn't believe in the afterlife, so it's super weird that they're asking this question, right? But so they're coming up to Jesus, trying to trip him up and make him look really biblically ignorant. And, and they're thinking, well, if there is an afterlife, I mean, this question's gonna trip him up. I mean, this question's gonna pose a huge problem for Jesus if there is a, an afterlife, because the Sadducees and the Pharisees would often argue about the afterlife. The Pharisees believed that there would be marriage in heaven. The Sadducees didn't. The Pharisees believed that the next life would be just like the one here. That when a person dies, then they're going to continue in the next life where they left off. And so the Sadducees are like, man, this question is going to pose a big, big problem to Jesus because really there is no resurrection. And how is he going to deal with this dilemma here? They're trying to make Jesus look foolish and stupid and the ironic part is that just a couple of days later, Jesus is going to die, Jesus is going to be buried, and Jesus is going to be resurrected in just a couple of days. And they don't believe in the resurrection. The ironic part is that they are speaking to the resurrection himself. In John eleven twenty five, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. How ironic is that? And so Jesus finally responds to them in verse 24, and he says this. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Some of you are probably thinking, what does this have to do with drifting? Like, what are we, this is talking about marriage. It ain't talking about drifting or wandering away from God. I'm getting there. I'm getting there, guys. Calm down. You see the word wrong there when Jesus says, is this not the reason you are wrong? That word for wrong in the biblical language is the word planao, where we get our English word planet. And planao means to proceed without a sense of purpose or direction. It means to go astray. It means to wander around aimlessly. It means to drift. And so Jesus is saying, guys, you are wandering aimlessly. You are being led astray. You are wandering around pointless. You are going away from what is true. That's what that word means there. In the book of Jude, he calls false teachers, which what the Sadducees were, wandering stars. That's what he calls false teachers, wandering stars. And so Jesus says, hey, you guys are wandering around aimlessly. You're drifting. And he gives them two reasons why. He says, you're wandering around because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That's what he says. You're wandering aimlessly because you don't know the scriptures. You are biblically ignorant. 
You are biblically illiterate, he tells them. You don't know the word of God. You think you know the word of God, but you don't. And if they don't know the word of God, then they don't know the power of God either. They don't know God himself. That is why you're drifting. Could you imagine how insulted the Sadducees must have felt? They prided themselves on knowing the law of Moses. They were so arrogant and prideful. And Jesus says, you don't, you're drifting. You're way off because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know God. And so what Jesus is about to do, he's about to demonstrate that they don't know the scriptures and that they don't know God. That's what he's about to do. He's going to demonstrate that they don't know the scriptures and that they don't know the power of God. And first, he's going to demonstrate that they don't know the power of God first, and then he's going to, so he does it in reverse order, the power of God. In verse 25, he says this, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So he's about to demonstrate to these guys that they don't know the power of God. Jesus states that in this verse here, I want to give you a quick summary, that God has the power to resurrect the dead. He also states that God has the, is powerful enough to create an afterlife that is far different and is far better than the life that we have here. Let me show you and explain this to you. First, look what Jesus says, for when they rise from the dead. Jesus doesn't say if they rise from the dead. He says when they rise from the dead. So there will be a future resurrection. It's, it's not a matter of if, it's when. There will be a future resurrection in the time to come. There will be a future resurrection for those who are in Christ to have eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And there will be a, a second resurrection for those who are not in Christ in a place called hell for all of eternity. The scriptures are very, very clear about this. It's not if, but when there is a resurrection. And so Jesus just goes straight and attacks what they don't believe, the resurrection. It's the first thing. He does. He attacks what they say will never happen. He says, when? So yes, there's going to be a resurrection. God is powerful enough to resurrect the dead. Then he says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so with this statement, Jesus destroys this hypothetical, absurd scenario that the Sadducees try to trip Jesus with. So here's what Jesus is saying. In heaven, in the afterlife, or in hell, both, there will be no marriage. There will be no marriage. Christina said, hallelujah. I could hear her from my house right now. She said, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I could hear you. I could hear you. There will be no marriage in heaven. Marriage is an earthly relationship. Marriage is a temporal relationship. Till death do us part. When a person dies, if the afterlife, there is no more marriage. And so I just want to encourage you today that if you're married, to really 
value the person that you're married to. Because the truth is, in the afterlife, it's way too late. Value them here. Love them here. Pursue them here. Honor them here. Serve them here. Love them while you can. I just want to encourage you that today. So there's no marriage in heaven. This is completely opposite to what Mormonism believe, Mormons believe. Most Mormons believe that there will be marriage in heaven, and many actually believe that there will be polygamy in heaven. That's unbiblical. There is no marriage in heaven at all. And so then Jesus says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In what way are we like angels in heaven? One, angels don't marry, so there won't be any marriage in heaven. Two, angels don't procreate, so in heaven there will be no need for sexual intimacy. And three, angels are eternal. So we are like angels in the sense that we will be eternal, we will not marry, and there will be no sexual intimacy in heaven. Now, I want to pause for a second and take a pit stop. Every once in a while, I'd like to just pause and take a pit stop to address something that's not the main point of the text, but I just want you to, just some food for thought here. Now, when Jesus says we're like angels, he doesn't say we are angels. I want to make that very clear. And so um, a lot of the times, here's what I see, and I understand where people are coming from, but let's say uh, a loved one, a friend, or a family has passed away. And typically people say, heaven just gained another angel. And I understand that. I, I, I've lost people uh, in my life, and so I understand that heartbrokenness. I understand what they're trying to say, that, that you know, if they're a believer, they're in the presence of God. But they, that phrase is used a lot. Heaven gained another angel. But the truth is, church, if we're going to look at everything we do and everything we say from a biblical perspective, we're not like angels. And that statement actually devalues the person. That, that statement actually doesn't give the worth and the value of that person that has passed away. Why? Because we were created in the image of God. Angels were not created in the image of God. We are higher than angels. When angels fell from grace, God didn't save them. When we fell from grace, God saved us. Okay, and I just want to make it clear, like, and I'm not trying to be super picky about everything, but those things matter. Everything we say matters. And so we have to have a biblical perspective on everything we do and everything we say. Does that make sense? Okay. So the point of that, that verse right there is, is Jesus saying, look, God, you, you don't know the power of God. And God has the power to resurrect the dead, which will happen, right? And he has the power to create a far better afterlife in the very end where we don't need marriage. 
where we don't need sexual intimacy. It's a far better life, and God has the power to create something more wonderful and more deeper in the afterlife. We would be in the afterlife, in the new heavens and new earth, if you are, again, in Christ, a believer, you will be able to love perfectly. You will be able to love like you've never loved before. You will be satisfied like you've never been satisfied before. It's going to be a wonderful, deeper experience that we will have in the new heavens and the new earth. And God has the power to create something much, much, much more better than the relationships and the earthly relationships that we have today. Does that make sense? Okay, good. And so then Jesus, after demonstrating that God does have the power, and the Sadducees don't know the power of God, then he now demonstrates that they don't even know the scriptures. This is, this is what he says. Verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? Again, remember, that's all they would, that's all they would hold to, those first, first five books. Uh, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So Jesus now demonstrates that they don't even know the scriptures. And where does he go? He goes to Exodus chapter 3, one of the most famous stories. I mean, both believers and unbelievers know this burning bush experience. And so he's, going, he's, he's about to prove that they don't know the scriptures from this story. He's about to prove that they don't know the scriptures from the Old Testament law of Moses. And Jesus says here, he says, have you not read in the book of Moses, the burning bush story where God says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? Notice this. When this was written, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were already dead. Right? When God was talking to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob were already dead. But God still tells Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice what God doesn't say. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're already dead. God is not a God of the dead. He's a God of the living. And out of this famous passage that that was really right under their nose, that they were so familiar with. He proves that they don't even know the scriptures because God is a God of the living and not of the dead. And so therefore, he puts their biblical ignorance and arrogance on display Really, it's double ignorance. They don't know God, and they don't know the scriptures. They don't know both. They think they do, but they don't. And what does he end with? He says, you are quite planeste, verb form of planeo. You are quite wrong. You are quite drifting. The word quite there is much. You are drifting much. You have drifted much. You have wandered around much. You have no purpose or direction. You are aimlessly drifting. Notice how the word 
wrong. Uh, Jesus uses at the beginning of his statement and at the very end. That's called an inclusio. And that is the main idea, the main focus of his point. That they've drifted. They've drifted. Why? Because they don't know the scriptures and they don't know God. So church, how do we stop from drifting? How do we stop from drifting? How do we stop from living a life without purpose and direction? How do we stop living a life from going astray? How do we stop from, from just wandering around aimlessly and constantly drifting from God? I think the points are very clear and very simple in this passage, aren't they? Number one, we must know the word of God. We must know the word of God. The Sadducees drifted and wandered because they don't know the scriptures. And it's the fundamental things that are the most important in the Christian life. Well, I already know that. Well, I already know. I know I need to know the word of God. But they're the most fundamental things. They're foundational. And if we can't have a solid biblical foundation, it doesn't matter what we build on top of it. It's going to come crumbling down. And so we must know the word of God. To be a Christian is to know the word of God. The truth is, truth is, we don't know the word of God. That's just the honest truth. Let me give you some examples of evangelical Christians, right, that, don't, that just don't know the word of God. Let me give you some examples. There's a study uh, called the State of Theology. And they ask a bunch of people different basic Basic theological questions. And these are three things, and there's so many more, so many more. But these are three things that really stuck out to me. And this is, this is pretty alarming if we are believers. Number one, they asked, G, uh, the statement was, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 30% of evangelical Christians agreed with that statement. That's huge. That you think Jesus is simply a teacher, not God. That's unbiblical. That is way off. That is totally drifted from the orthodox faith of Christianity, of biblical Christianity. Let me give you a second thing. Another statement. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 46% of evangelicals agree with that. That's almost half. It's very clear if you simply open up the scriptures that we are not good at all. We're actually, by nature, we are spiritual sinners. We are sinners. 46% of evangelicals believe in that. Man, again, wandering off. Third statement, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 42% of evangelicals believe that. It's simple things. We don't know the word of God. God only accepts worship from his children. That's it. Who are saved. That's it. We don't know the scriptures. Phoenix ranked number 92 
in a study that compared the least Bible-minded cities in America. Out of 100 cities, Phoenix was 92. Least Bible-minded. Portland was 86. New York was 90. Salt Lake City was 91. San Francisco was 94. Vegas went to 95. We don't know the scriptures here in Arizona. We just don't. We really don't. And so here's my hope and my prayer for you guys, for us, is that we would be people who know the scriptures, that we would be people who are eager at examining the scriptures. Paul and Silas, uh, in the book of Acts, they go uh, preach and preach the gospel and preach the scriptures to the Bereans. And this is what it says that the Bereans did when Paul and Silas preached to them. It says this, now the Jews were more noble than these in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness and examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So when Paul and Silas went to go preach to these guys, they said, you know, we need to examine the scriptures. They were eager to examine the scriptures. And, and, and they, they, they examined the scriptures to see if Paul and Silas were really teaching them the correct way. They didn't want secondhand knowledge, what my pastor said, or this guy on YouTube said, or this and this person said. No, no, no. They examined the scriptures for themselves. And I hope and I pray that when you go home, you double check me. That you double check me. That you examine your, the scriptures to see if I'm really teaching you the correct way. That is my hope, that is my prayer, that we would be eager to know the scriptures, to know the word of God. Because here's the thing, when we don't know the word of God, culture, the waves of culture are just going to drag us out to sea. The waves of cultural Christianity are just going to cause us to drift and drift and drift because we don't know the word of God and because we don't have a solid anchor and foundation for our lives. Psalm 119, 105 says this, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's easy to drift in darkness. It's not easy to drift in the light. It's easy to drift in darkness. It's very difficult to drift in the light when, when the word of God is lighting your path. It's guiding you. It's leading you. It's comforting you. It's strengthening you. It's hard to wander, and it's hard to drift when the Word of God is your light, when the Word of God is your anchor, when the Word of God is your bread that sustains you each and every day. Let me give you some homework for this week. Will you go to Psalm 119 this week? Go to Psalm 119. Spend your whole week in Psalm 119 and make some observations of what that chapter says about the Word of God what we should do, how we should treat it, how we should meditate upon it, the blessings that come from knowing the word of God. Live in 119 this week. My hope and my prayer is that you would have that same passion, desire, devotion for the word of God. Secondly, very simple, we must know the God of the word. Not only do we have to know the word of God to not drift, but we have to know the God of the word. I love Psalm 119.10, it actually combines these two points here. 
with my whole heart, I seek you, right? I want to know you. I'm seeking you, God. And let me not wander from your commandments. Kind of fuses these two things together. Man, I want you to know God. I want you to know God. I want you to know the word of God. Because to know the word of God is to know God himself. And to know God himself is to know the word of God. You can't separate the two. And to know God is to know Christ. We can't know God as our heavenly father if we don't know Christ himself. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the father except through him. And so here is my hope and here is my prayer for you, church, when it comes to knowing God. The example of the apostle Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, this is what he says about knowing God. I'm going to read it kind of slow, but it says this. It says, uh, b- before this, he was talking about all his accomplishments and all his accolades and all his privileges and all his degrees and all of this stuff. Like, he's literally just saying all of this stuff, right? Like, all his accomplishments. He's kind of boasting. But then he says this. He says, indeed, I count everything a loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That word to count, there's an accounting word. Essentially, this is what Paul's doing. He, he gets a piece of paper. He puts a line down the middle. He puts profit and loss. And all of his accomplishments, all of, all, every single thing in his life goes in the loss column. And the only thing that goes in the gain column is Christ. That's, what he, that's what's going on here. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as trash. Everything apart from Christ is simply garbage to Paul. It's simply trash. That's what he says. In order that I may gain Christ, what gain means there is to make Christ his own. All of these things are on the lost column. I don't even care about them. They're trash. They're garbage. They're rubbish. Jesus is on the gain column, on the profit column. And I'm going to acquire him for my own, he says. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. To know him. Uh, Paul uses the word for know uh, that's more personal. It's a personal relationship. It's an intimate relationship. It's a deep relationship that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Because like him, uh, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Does that sound like a guy who drifts no that doesn't sound like a guy who drifts why because he knows God because he knows Christ he's not drifting he's not wandering because he knows Christ and in his life there's nothing more important in Christ himself. The question for you today is what is more important than Christ himself? What do you have on the gain column that should be on the loss column? Church, what it means to be a Christian 
a true Christian, not a cultural Christian, is to make Christ not our number one priority, but our only priority. That's what that means. To be a Christian is simply to know God. Church, our world doesn't need any more wandering Christians. Our world doesn't need any more drifting Christians. Our world needs believers who are rooted and grounded in the scriptures. Our world needs believers who are living on purpose and for a purpose, not simply wandering around aimlessly. Our world needs believers who are willing to stand up for true biblical convictions, not peddling to the ideologies and thoughts of this culture. We're never going to win the world if we look like the world. So church, friends, I hope and I pray that you would just have this burning desire to know and go. To know God, to know the scriptures, and to go. To go and reach people who are wandering. To go and reach people who are walking and wandering aimlessly, that are hurting and broken and without hope. And we know those people. Those people might be in our families, our friends, our neighbors. May we know and may we go. Let's not wander anymore. May we know the word of God, church. To be a Christian is to know the word of God. To be a Christian is to know God in the simplest form. Now, the big question is this. I guess an even bigger question is this. It's not do we know God, but is it but it's, does God know us? That's even a bigger question. Do we know God? It's really not the ultimate question. But does he know us? Matthew chapter 7. People come to Jesus. Didn't we do all of these things in your name? Didn't we prophesy, cast out demons? Didn't we go to church? Didn't we serve once in a while? Didn't we give once in a while? Didn't we watch online for once in a while? What does Jesus say? Depart from me. I never knew you. That's scary. Examine yourself. Just because you're in church doesn't mean you're in Christ. Does he know you? Does he really know you? God, I don't want to wander. I don't want to drift. I don't want to live life with no purpose. And neither do I want that for anyone here today. God, if we've drifted from you, 
if there was ever a time in our life where we were more passionate or closer to you than we are now, would you just draw us back in by your sovereign grace and your sovereign hand? Would you fan the flame of our heart towards you, towards your word, towards your people, towards your church, towards your kingdom, towards the lost? draw us back in, God. God, I pray if there's someone here who doesn't know you, let them know you today. They would repent of their sin and place their faith in you, Jesus, because you alone can save. I pray that you would know them, that you would draw them by the power of your spirit. We thank you. We honor you. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to those who give generously to this ministry. Without you, this ministry would not be possible. If you feel led to give, please use the link below as we seek to make a difference in people's lives. Also, please make sure to share this with your family and your friends. Again, thank you so much for listening.